And here come the Greeks, led out by their veteran centre-half, Heraclitus. And here come the Germans now, led by their skipper, Nobby Hagel. The Greeks are going mad! The Greeks are going mad! This is Philosophy for Theologians, your regular look at different issues in philosophy from a Reformed perspective. My name is Camden Busey, and we are broadcasting live out of Studio B in Glenside, Pennsylvania. I have a wonderful cast and crew with me today, I should say. I have to my left, Nathan Shannon, who is a Ph.D. student at the Free University of Amsterdam. Thanks for joining us, Nathan. Hey, Camden, how you doing? We're doing wonderful. Nathan <laughs> Shannon. Now we're doing even better. Top we 40 philosophy. Speaking there with his uh, Casey Kasem voice, we have Jared Oliphant, who is Director of Admissions at Westminster Theological Seminary. Thanks for joining us, Jared. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. There it is. Jared <laughs> Oliphant. A little delay, but it works. And last but not least, of course, we have... Jonathan. Brack. Who is the <laughs> admissions counselor, as well as the student at Westminster Theological Seminary, as well as the proprietor of Studio B and the general caretaker and custodian thereof. Thanks for having us over, Jonathan. It's great to be home. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> we appreciate you opening the doors and letting us bring all this gear in. Uh, but today we are going to continue our look at different important philosophers throughout the ages. We talked about Aristotle and his metaphysics uh, just about a month ago, so it's been a while, but we're continuing now. Today we're going to be speaking about Willard von Orman Quine. Willard Van Orman Quine, I should say. His dates are 1908 to 2000. He died on Christmas Day in 2000. And Quine was an American philosopher and logician in the analytic tradition. He was affiliated with Harvard University, basically in one way or another, all the way back since 1930, either as a student, then he became a professor, uh, and he actually taught mathematics and philosophy, and then later he retired and continued as Professor Emeritus until he died on Christmas in 2000. In 2009, Leiter Reports conducted a recent poll among philosophers who in turn named Quine as one of the five most important philosophers of the past two centuries. So we are uh, spending our time wisely today. And uh, today we are actually going to be speaking about Quine's 1951 paper, Two Dogmas of Empiricism. And this is one of the most important papers of the 20th century in the analytic tradition. We can get into what that actually means. Uh, but the paper itself is an attack on two central parts of the logical positivist philosophy. One is the analytic and synthetic distinction, and the other is reductionism, which is the theory that each meaningful statement gets its meaning from a logical construction of terms, referring exclusively to immediate experience. So if that's not a mouthful, I don't know what is. But uh, we're going to be unpacking many of those statements today as we look at Quine's Two Dogmas of Empiricism. But before we do that, I'm going to pass things over to Jared Oliphant, who's going to mention a new book for us. Yeah, I just wanted to give a little bit of a preview. I'm not sure when exactly this is going to come up, but I've been reading a book, um, or kind of revisiting a book. It came out in 2003. It's called The Untamed God, and it's by uh, Jay Richards. The subtitle is A Philosophical Exploration of Divine Perfection, Simplicity, and Immutability. And um, so at some point in the future, I would like to discuss this just because it deals a lot with uh, possible world semantics. It deals with Bart. It deals with Hartshorn um, essentialism. A lot of the things that we've been talking about um, for the past few episodes. So, um, you know, if, if you're a listener and, and you like delving into some of the heavier parts of analytic philosophy um, and current theologians, uh, definitely read along with me and we'll talk about this sometime in the future. Yeah, we had mentioned before the show that we would like to start with a book club, and I don't know if this will be uh, one of the first. We might try to start with something a little broader and more basic, uh, but at some point we would like to do maybe at least a monthly book club where we would name a book of the month and give everyone uh, the entire month to read it, and then we would uh, talk about it and allow you to call in, uh, and if you didn't want to, you just listen in to the live broadcast and we will record it and produce it as an episode at some point. So if you have any ideas for books you would like to listen to, uh, or if you would like to listen to this one, The Untamed God, uh, let us know. You can email us at mail at reformedforum.org, and we would be uh, very happy uh, to entertain your questions or your comments or suggestions. Just like Oprah's Book Club. It's very like, similar to that. And I think we'll have just about as much power as she does <laughs> in terms yeah. of Amazon. And finances. As long as we can get Glenn Beck to recommend our book, we'll be set. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he'll like The Untamed God. But no, anyway. No comment. 
Passing things now over to Jonathan Brack. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, today, as I mentioned, about Quine's paper, Two Dogmas of Empiricism. So take it away. Jonathan Brack. <laughs> Thanks, Camden. Uh, yeah, I wanted to do this paper because, um, like you said in the intro, it's one of the most influential papers in the world of philosophy that has been written. And it's actually one of my favorites. And I don't read a lot of analytic philosophy. Um, now, I'm going to be saying things in the future of this segment uh, about Quine and the fact that I think Quine is actually, at the end of the day, end of the day more of a, a postmodern continental. But um, let me say this first off. I understand that Quine is an analytic philosopher. Um, he writes like an analytic philosopher. He reasons like an analytic philosopher. Um, and I don't read a lot of analytic philosophy, but this is definitely analytic. And uh, Jerry, could you give us a definition, a real quick definition of what analytic is? Uh, yeah, that's that's tough. I mean, to do. as far I mean, as the way in which we're talking about it. Yeah, I, I don't know if I could give a definition. I can maybe summarize some differences between continental and analytic. Con- continental would would be those uh, in the tradition of Kant, like Hegel. Um, Husserl. Continental's um, not K-A-N-T. <laughs> right. Cantonal. Oh, true. I never even picked up on that. Um, but it would be more, um, continental philosophers tend to write more uh, in the abstract and more poetically, I guess yeah. you could say, um, yeah, not as uh, mathematically precise. In the analytic tradition, it, it's kind of um, what you'd expect. It's very, um, you know, it has an emphasis on logical precision, um, yeah. Really trying formal to formal logic, yeah, analysis formal logic, of language, right? Uh, a, a lot of possible world semantics are are used, mm-hmm. and so it's very um, technical in that aspect. And uh, this is this is partially where Jonathan and I differ, just in terms of interests. Um, I think he gravitates a lot more towards continental philosophy. I gravitate a lot more towards analytic philosophy, just because I love the precision. It's really getting at. Um, uh, well, it's it's trying to be as accurate as possible, and so it's it's slow, it's it's difficult reading, but um, I I like it that way. So y- you're right, Quine is definitely in the analytic tradition in here because he's looking at terms, he's trying to define everything, he's just he's scrutinizing every single little detail, and that's yeah. part of his project in this paper. And quite a bit of analytic philosophy, we might trace it back to the work of Gottlob Frege, who right. uh, really was a, a mathematician, and he tried to. Combine, I think, his two, dif- the two different disciplines that he loved in mathematics and philosophy, and he he kind of developed the idea of formal logic or, or uh, predicate logic, and mm-hmm. and uh, he he was very influential in that. And from there, uh, philosophers of a certain mindset, typically in North America uh, and and some other nations, have uh, taken to uh, Frege and in his use of formulas to. Um, to try to ga- gather pers- uh, precision in their argumentation. Yeah. Right. And you find a, a real loose, a fast and loose uh, distinction between continental and analytic philosophy would be the mathematicians or the analytics or the English, the English right. majors or the literature majors, the poetry people or the continental. It's yeah. more loose and feelings and, and, and those sorts of things. It's just imprecise. Yeah. Um, and so th- those kinds of people, you get like Heidegger and you're talking about being in the world, but you don't open his book and find out all of these uh, formulas that he uses uh, to try to prove his definition of being. He just yeah. goes and says it and then he yeah. tries to explain it based on illustrations. Right. I mean, just to give an example, one example of continental philosophy would be, uh, you know, Heidegger's being in time. Yeah. Uh, a good example of analytic philosophy would be something like, uh, planning as nature of necessity, where he's right. he's mm-hmm. real technical and using modal logic and those types of things to get real precise with um, the nature of necessity. That's right. great. If the phrase "if P then Q" yeah. pops up, that's you not know continental. You're reading <laughs> I analytic. Know. I know. Philosophy. Anyways, uh, yeah, I wanted to do this because this is one of the few uh, analytic pieces that um, I cherish. I And the reason I cherish it is, is simply because um, of what Quine, I believe, accomplishes here, which is he takes down these two dogmas of empiricism. And one is, is very important to, I would say, you know, the history of philosophy um, as far as linguistically starting with Hume, 
um, in the d- distinction right. between analytic and synthetic truth. That's almost if you walk into a classroom today in, in a philosophy classroom, that's just an assumption. You have analytic statements and synthetic statements. An analytic statement is all bachelors are unmarried males. Yeah. A synthetic statement is that barn over there is red. And so there's statements that are um, just, they seem sort of mathematical by definition statements, and there's statements about the world. Descriptive. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so that, there's always been that distinction since um, since the time of, as far as linguistically, as far as defined since Hume, and then Kant took that. And so um, that's a huge player for Kant's philosophy as well. And then also you have uh, reductionism, which is the belief that, each meaningful statement is equivalent to some sort of logical construct upon terms which refer to um, immediate experience. And so it's just another form of empiricism. You just you can rede- reduce each, each statement that you say to some sort of empirical verification. And that, that comes down to a sort of a kernel of truth. You know, you just, hence reductionism. And so... Both of those are sort of assumed, even in philosophy classrooms today. Um, and Quine, when I first read this, uh, he just, just not you would expect somebody from a continental side to come and destroy this. Somebody like a Derrida or a Leotard or a Foucault to come and say, hey, wait a second, you know, raise a lot of flags. But it's an analytic philosopher. And so it's... Uh, to me, it's like, you know, somebody from their own camp comes and says, hey, this is hocus pocus. And he actually says that phrase in here. But um, <laughs> anyways, uh, I don't want to get too deep into uh, a lot of this. I'm just going to point out a few highlights because uh, it's it really is it's difficult. It's not for the faint of heart. Um, it's There's some difficult passages in here, but we'll try to break it down and put it, uh, a few things into simple terms. Uh, talk about how he he distinguishes um, analytic and synthetic, and how he shows that that's not a proper distinction. And then um, and then we'll talk a little bit about reductionism, and then we'll point out a few highlights. What do you say? And, yeah. and just a quick thing: if this is found on the internet, so if you want to follow along, two dogs, dogmas of empiricism can be found. If you just Google it, you'll find the paper out there yeah. somewhere. I don't want to give the, the address is a little complicated, but um, Google it, and you'll we'll find also it. put a link to it in the show yeah, notes of course there you, but there you go. if you're able and uh, buy a computer uh, go ahead and, and find it and you'll be able to follow along right um, I, I want to first point out that <laughs> something real quick on the first page Quine makes an observation that you, you think that this is sort of a Vantillian but um, he points out he's talking about Kant's understanding of the distinction between synthetic and analytic and he says um, as far as analicity goes and that's really where he takes a lot of his um, critique is towards the history of philosophy's understanding of the word analyticity. Analyticity. Right. And, um, yeah, that's right. Uh, analytic. Let me just yeah. say that. And so, um, right off the front, he says, uh, Kant's intent, uh, evident more from the use he makes of the notion of an- analys- analyticity then from his definition of it, can be recited thus. A statement is analytic when it is true by virtue of meanings and independently a fact. Pursuing this line, then, let us examine the concept of meaning, which is presupposed. Yeah. And so Quine, right off the bat, he goes, what we do a lot in Reformed All Apologetics is we ask the question, on what basis is this uh, analytic? And so he asks you know, the simple question of, uh, presuppositions here. And so Quine is already, you know, so that's just another example of presuppositionalism by itself. That concept is not something near and dear to just uh, Van Til's apologetic. Yeah, right. so that's true. philosophical, period. Yeah. He just asks presuppositions all the time. And so um, Van Til did something else besides just blunt presuppositionalism. Mm-hmm. Um, nevertheless, uh, he goes on and. Um, I don't know, guys. How would you like to explain this first? I would say that he first gets into the nitty gritty of the distinction between analytic and synthetic with the concepts of um, synonymy. Right? Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, and maybe to to set the context a, a little bit, there's uh you know philosophy of language was just starting to really uh, come into its own at this point. I mean, it, it had a precedent, obviously, but um it really took off in the 20th century. And what he's doing, like you said before, he's jumping off Frege, and so there there are these um philosophy of language conceptual problems, like uh you know just in terms of uh, terms and what they mean. So. Um, you know, a term can two terms can mean the same thing, but be different in name. So Frege has the example, the evening star and the morning star. In actuality, that has the same extension. Um, but it, in uh, language, that means a different thing. A star that you see in the evening, a star that you see in the morning when when the physical object is actually the same. On the other hand, um, terms can also be different in meaning, uh, but the same in extension. So uh, Quine makes the point. A creature with a heart and a creature with a kidney. kidney right. At every point, that's going to be the same creature because they have to have both of those things to um, to live or whatever. So extension-wise, those are always going to reference the same physical object but be different in, um, in meaning. So there are all these kinds of meaning games and language games that are thrown out there to say, all right, we need to think more carefully about meaning terms, extension, the physical realm versus analyticity and uh, definition such as, and this is where he goes. He says, all right, let's, let's take a look at the term bachelor. Let's take a look at the term unmarried man. Can you have any meaning to those terms without reference to the physical, external, empirical world? That's, that's kind of his project. That's right. And just to give you guys a, a quick example, he, he, on uh, page three, he says he starts beginning to talk about a simple analytic statement that's common to all analytic philosophers, which is, um, no unmarried man is married, um, and no bachelor is married. So, um, and then, you, but you, basically, what you have to do is you have to understand there's a, you, you'd have to argue there's well there's there's bachelor and unmarried male are synonymous with each other, and so you have to actually well okay so they have this proposition of or this um, this idea of synonymy with mm-hmm. each other. So you, then you ask have to ask the question of definitions. Mm. You have to, you know, uh, definitions or synonymy is, it depends on the definition. So a lot of people say, well, by definition, they're synonymous, right? And so it's like, well, what do you mean? Like, where do we get their definitions? Where does that come from? You, so you just keep asking the questions. Right. right, and he would say, you'd say most people say, well, you go to the dictionary. And he says, yeah. well, What's the dictionary? Dictionary is just a reflection of behavior. Yeah, usage. In other words, a dictionary, yeah, usage. So the dictionary is not some kind of uh, metaphysical other world. It's exactly. a reflection of empirical use. Yeah, the kind of the, yeah. the phrase used to um, refer to what uh, he, Quine is doing is called semantic holism, and that uh, any single meaning of a word or any, any of the meanings of a part uh, can't be explained without the whole. Mm-hmm. So you can't just take each individual on its own and divorce it from That's right. the entire. But uh, semantic holism is in place, meaning uh, the meaning resides in the system. Yeah, the context. Yeah. Location, location, location. Right. Let me just uh, give you uh, a quote here. He says, um, um, Bachelor, uh, for example, is defined as unmarried man. But how do we find that bachelor is defined by as unmarried man? Who defined it thus and when? Are we to appeal to the nearest dictionary and accept the lexographer's formula as law? Clearly, this would be putting the cart before the horse. The lexographer is an empirical scientist whose business is the recording of antecedent facts. And if he, is, if he glosses bachelor as unmarried man, it is because of his belief that there is a relation of synonymy between these forms. See, it's already assumed. Implicit in general or preferred usage prior to his own work. The notion of synonymy presupposed here has still to be clarified, presumably in terms of relating to linguistic behavior, which uh, Nate just pointed out. Certainly the definition, which is the lexicographer's report of an observed synonymy, cannot be taken as the ground of synonymy. So that just gives you an example of, of Quine just basically, you can't just appeal to the, the phrase, oh, well, by definition. It yeah. doesn't work. Yeah, right. So, that's right. So a dictionary is uh, descriptive. It's not a, a reference tool to yeah, uh, for an ultimate meaning. It change over time. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right, and it can change over time. Right. So and, you know, take the take the term computer. Um, a mm-hmm. hundred years ago, that meant someone who calculated things and who was very good at math, right. and, and you would go to for complicated. 
right now it has completely different definition and that's because of usage and and really because of the physical world the or, empirical or the world. word gay or that i mean or honestly that. yeah that's yeah, a huge right. difference yeah just in you know 60 years yeah completely then he yeah do you guys mind if we move on to the next sort of section or do you want to talk about definitions more or? no that's good yeah i okay. think that's that's sufficient yeah and Okay, cool. Um, then he gets to the section that's called interchangeability. Um, mm-hmm. This is a little bit more thick. Uh, he talks about Leibniz's notion of interchangeability under the phrase uh, "salva verite," which means just basically, you know, save the truth. Right, right? truth unharmed. Yeah, yeah, yeah something. Yeah. And so, um, basically, it, it's uh, interchangeability is the best. <laughs> it's kind of ironic, but synonymy that we could use here is just. Salva verite is just interchangeability. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in other words, can you substitute each of the two terms in every single case in uh, when you're using those terms? Yeah, that's what the what's the goal is. Yeah. Right. So every time you use the word bachelor, can you always and in every case substitute um, the I guess phrase that's unmarried legitimate man. totality transfer yeah. or some sort? I mean, we, yeah, right. Yeah. Are they are they completely interchangeable? That's all he's saying. Right. That's synonymy. Right, so um, b- b- how he begins to chip at this is on uh, page six. He says, uh, let's just take this phrase that assumes this principle of interchangeability. Necessarily, all and only bachelors are unmarried men. And this goes along with a simple interchangeable statement, right? You can exchange bachelors and unmarried men for all possible worlds. So necessarily, all and only bachelors our unmarried men should be true based on solve verite or interchangeability. So he begins to ask the question, um, the condition of interchangeability, solve verite, varies veritate, in, just. varies in its force with variations in the richness of the language at hand. The above argument supposes we are working with a language rich enough to contain the adverb necessarily. Yeah. This adverb being so constructed as to yield truth when and only when applied to an analytic statement. But can we condone a language which contains such an adverb? Does the adverb really make sense? To suppose <laughs> that it does is to suppose that we have already made satisfactory sense of analicity. Then what are we so hard at work for now in this paper? So, and that's one of the cute statements. Okay, so Quine's concept of interchangeability, he takes down here in uh, on page six, and I'll just read you this paragraph of how he does it. First, he assumes this phrase, necessarily all and only bachelors are unmarried men. That's a, a statement that's true based on this, prince, uh, this, uh, this principle, salve veritate, mm-hmm. um, right. or inter- interchangeability. Yeah. And what he asks is... Uh, the above argument supposes we are working with a language rich enough to contain the adverb necessarily. This adverb being so construed as to yield truth when and only when applied to an analytic statement. But can we condone a language which contains such an adverb? Does the adverb really make sense? To suppose that it does is to suppose that we already have made satisfactory sense of analicity then what are we so hard at work on right now? Right. So basically it's even just just saying, you know, well, it's interchangeable. It's, it exists in all possible worlds because necessarily it's to assume that you already have this concept of truth or analyticity to make the case for anal, um, analyticity in the first place. Yeah, yeah. That's, Does that make sense? Totally. That's what I appreciated about this whole paper is because the, the method – of investigating what something means is you start with you know the the definition let's say um, you know analyticity or or whatever it is then you have to make another statement that describes it or yeah. talks about it right. but you haven't defined those terms that you Either. need to describe it and so you have to define those terms hence the semantic holism it, that he's getting at yeah exactly yeah. and it's just uh, it's such a great point and it it um it just basically points out philosophers beg the question all the time of what they mean with these 
statements that they just gloss over and assume and think that you can just take for granted when really, uh, if you're going to be true to the method, you need to dissect right. every single important word or, or every word that you that you make with these they, statements. I think he's got a great point there in terms of the criticism, but before we just jump on the boat of semantic holism, there's some problems there too. I mean, how much of a system do you have to know to say that uh, you know the definition of bachelor only makes sense in t- inside the entire system? Well, what if you know 2,000 words and I know 2,001? I mean, does that one extra word I have, obviously it changes and augments the entire system, but does that mean all 2,000 words that you know, you don't have the same meaning as me? So there's some problems there in terms of trying to understand exactly. I mean, semantic holism isn't as precise <laughs> as an analytic philosopher would like it to be either. Yeah. But but the criticism is there. Uh and I don't know if it's you need helpful. to conclude semantic holism as a positive laying out of a, of a semantic system. Um, right. I think he's just critiquing. We need to be more careful when when we define sure. terms. Sure, I just want to caution the listener before jumping on a, a boat the entire uh, yeah. opposite direction to say that right, right, right. The, you know the truth of the matter is probably somewhere in between the yeah. two extremes. Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, moving on, he he gets into uh, semantical rules. Which is like, well, maybe it's just the question of semantics, right? That's a that's another cop out that you'll hear. I've heard that plenty of times, you know, when I was uh, studying philosophy at Texas A and M, which is where it's just semantics, you know. Now we're just debating semantics, you know. Right. You heard that phrase before. Yeah. Um, so he talks about semantical rules, and I don't want to get into um, a lot of the details here because they're they're pretty difficult. But um, he he talks a lot about Carnap, and he he takes down Carnap here. Um, uh, but let me, let me just show you where he ends up. Um, he ends up basically saying there, there is no real progress. Um, instead of appealing to an unexplained word analytic, we are now appealing to an unexplained, unexplained phrase, semantic rule at the end of the day, not every true statement, which says that the statements of some class are true can count as a semantical rule. Otherwise, all truths would be analytic in the sense of being true according to semantical rules. Semantical rules are distinguishable, apparently, only by the fact of appearing on a page (laughs) under the heading semantical rules. And this heading is itself then meaningless. (laughs) Yeah. And I think basically what he's going to begin pointing out and what, what he's pointing out here is that semantic rules and semantic domains, they depend on a meta language as soon as you have somebody that's going to try to come up with like well here is the truth of truth it's like then you begin to say well i don't really know what we're talking about anymore because (laughs) so you know i don't have well is the truth of truth true or false you know Uh like what's the criteria what's the truth of truth of truth right it's like well here's the meta language (laughs) that's talking about language and so um i think he's, he's just pointing that out and as Christians, I think what we would say is, well, there's there's a limit to, you know, our intellect, and there's a mis- there's mystery at the bottom of you know every question ultimately. Ultimately, but um, that doesn't mean it, there's there's never any truth to it, but there is mystery. And so, since he since the history of uh, philosophy has always basically demanded. Um, accountability for everything in our experience then he because this mystery pops up then he can say that you know uh this is a false dogmatic if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. sorry go ahead no i was just gonna say it seems to me that his general project in the first four sections of the paper is to prove that there are no sort of self-standing statements that are true in and of themselves right right so he wants to say that there's no self-contained there's no such thing as a self-contained statement which is true sort of in a vacuum all bachelors are unmarried men and it's just a dream to say that 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 such an analytic truth is true apart from reference to other statements or to real observations and then then he's going to go on to say that the idea that a, a, a statement can all by itself be verified empirically that that's also a dream right and that's also impossible and so you know what he's going to do his holism comes from the fact that everything is sort of interrelated yeah um and 
I think we can kind of sympathize with that. Right. But then when he says, he, he sort of, instead of a Christian, what Jonathan was, was just tapping on the door of was he has a non-Christian view of mystery, whereas, you know, so he ends up concluding at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if we know anything. It's just cool to pretend like we do. You know, it's, it's <laughs> most practical to pretend like everything is there, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, functionally. Right, right. So so you just you're you're always on the precipice of this massive irrationalism. Um whereas as Christians we can say, yeah, everything is interrelated, you know? I mean, you you can't say anything without referring to other things and, and empirical statements can't stand all by themselves because if I say that house is red, you could say, "Well, what's red?" Well, that's a color. What's a color? Well, you know, and so on. <laughs> you know, there's you know, right? And then it goes on and on. Right. And on. But instead of being on the precipice of total irrationality you know we're on the precipice of of god's right. god's own thoughts mm-hmm. yeah exactly exactly um yeah quine moves on to take down reductionism too and, and he takes down or do you want to say something Jim? just one more thing before <laughs> yeah. we move on to section five uh, i just want to read the the one paragraph what it's just funny should i just move on <gasps> no please <Should> please <laughs> No, that, that was all me. It was it was a, a uh, panic attack over, over moving on to section five. I Go ahead. Just wanted to to address because some people would say, okay, well, uh, you know, ordinary language doesn't cut it. So then let's think of an ideal or an artificial language right. that doesn't have yeah. these problems of usage yeah. and things like that. He he tackles Esperanto. that as well. Right. Um, and just to um, to quote him, this is a paragraph right above section five. He says, uh, from the point of view of the problem of analyticity, the notion of an artificial language with semantical rules is a faux fallet par excellence um, in my best... Oh, I don't speak Portuguese. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? <laughs> in my best French <laughs> accent. <laughs> there you go. And, and he, he concludes with this. Semantical rules determining the analytic statements of an artificial language are of interest only insofar as we already understand the notion of analyticity. They are of no help in gaining this understanding. So we'd already have to figure out what analyticity is before we move on to an art an artificial language. Um, so we're, it, that doesn't help at all. Um, you can't create an artificial language and hope that you're going to get some kind of pure understanding of an of analyticity or synthetic or, or any other definition. Um, you're still stuck with the same problem because you have to communicate that artis- that artificial language um, first starting with the ordinary language. So just wanted to point that out before we move on to reductionism. That's, yeah, that's a good point. Um, the, and it, of course, moves into where he's heading, which is reductionism. Um, the this is kind of difficult to talk about because um, he he critiques Carnap, and that's where really where the the root of the critique is. And I'll, I'm going to try to put this really simply. Um, first, he dismisses radical reductionism, um, and and then gets to something a little bit more uh, just higher and thicker. And logic, so that's why he just he moves to Carnap. It's like it would be a cop out or a straw man to just critique radical reductionism, and so he goes to Carnap instead. Well, um, and and we should point out that radical uh, reductionism had its its precedent in Locke and Hume, which he points out here that uh, that every idea must either originate directly in sense experience or else be compounded of ideas thus originating. Um, so if another uh, synonym, ironically, is radical empiricism um, right. from those guys. So, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and so um, Carnap adopted as his starting point was uh, it, it was not a sense-datum language in the narrow conceivable sense. It was included um, it, notions of logic, uh, even high like set theory. In effect, it included the whole language of pure mathematics. The ontology implicit in it i.e. the range of values of its variables, embraced not only sensory events, but classes, classes of classes, and so on. Um, empiricists there are, are who would, would boggle at such, um, such just, I don't know, just unbelievable uh, genius at Carnap to do that in reductionism. Um, and so he gives uh, this, this, this statement that... Um, that Carnap does. Um, yeah, this is really tough. Okay, here, here. <laughs> l- let me just say it this way. I'll, s- I'll just say it real slow so it, it, it comes out so that we can follow along. Carnap explained spatio-temporal point instances as quadruples of real number numbers. And um, <laughs> I 
Can you? Can you? Uh, can anybody understand that? Yeah. Yeah, it, it just uh, coordinates. I mean, yeah. sort right, of yeah, yeah. Pythagorean, a, isn't I mean, it? That, I mean, that is radical empiricism. Where's Where's the sense bit or sense datum yeah, that, yeah. that we're referring to when we speak a certain sentence or phrase? Right. Huh. So, anyways, uh, they uh, this okay. So that's just um, let me let me see where it goes here. The statement of the form. So here's an an, an example of a. a re- a, redu- a pure reductionist statement of something that's true about reality, right? Okay, so quality Q is at a point instant X, Y, Z, T, where according to his canons to be a por- uh, um, apportioned truth values in such a way as to maximize and minimize certain overall features. And with growth of, growth of experience, the truth values were to be progressively revised in the same spirit. So basically what he's saying is just giving you an example of here's a statement and then Carnap saying we can build off of this statement. Uh-huh. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, and the and the XYZT, those are the four dimensions. Yeah, so it's uh, it depth and time. E- exactly. Exactly. You can locate something at, at point whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So uh right off the bat he says um I think I think this is a good schematization, deliberately oversimplified to be sure, um, of what science really does. But it provides no indication, not even the sketchiest, of how a statement of the form quality Q is at X, Y, Z, T could ever be translated into Carnap's initial language of sense and data logic. The connective is at in that statement remains an added undefined connective so even the use of language we add words in there you add ambiguity there's not as much precision in that statement as you might think there was right just even the connections warning warning (laughs) epistemic failure that's a great that's a great time to put that clip in because that's exactly what it's just you can't just sort of just put in is at Without any explanation, if we're if we're seeking absolute precision, depends on what the defin of definition of is of is, is. is. It's <laughs> right. the Clintonian definition of <laughs> <Yes>. being. Wow, <laughs> so, mine was a Clintonite, right? And so, I think he's just pointing that out. Is that mm-hmm. is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. And he he goes on. I don't want to just read all of Quine, but um, I think it is important. He has a great. What Quine is really good at is just summarizing people's beliefs. And so at one paragraph, he summarizes uh, empiricism. He says, But the dogma of reductionism has, in a subtler and more tenuous form, continued to influence the thought of empiricists. The notion lingers um, that to each statement or each synthetic statement, there is associated a unique range of possible sensory events. Uh, there, there you see the empiricism, such that the occurrence of any of them would add to the likelihood of truth of the statement. Um, so sensory events can either add to the likelihood. And that there is associated also another unique range of possible sensory events whose occurrence would detract from that likelihood. So he's basically saying, let's go to the lab. You have experiment A that would um, support your thesis, and you have experiment B that would not support your thesis. Um, those are two empirical ways of thinking about truth. Um, is something true or not? Well, you go to the lab, you do experiments, mm-hmm. and, and that comes from empirical data. Yeah. And, and uh, just to, to kind of do a callback, we touched a little bit on this when we talked about logical positivism. Oh, of course. Because um, they have the verification theory of meaning, and that's really what Quine is jumping off of. Um, and so if you want to hear a, kind of a further discussion of that, elaborate a little bit, um, go there <laughs> as uh, an endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, moving on, he at the end of the critique of reductionism, he says, I, I hope we're impressed with um, how stubborn the distinction between analytic and synthetic has resisted any straightforward drawing. Um, but he also says I'm impressed apart from prefabricated examples of black and white balls in an urn with how baffling the problem has always been of arriving at any explicit theory of the empirical confirmation of a synthetic statement, um, which is what we just talked about in reductionism. So my, he says my present suggestion, and this is where um, I really want to get into the fact that Quine is a continental thinker, just 
he just has the clothes of an analytic um, of an analytic philosophy. He just uses analytic vocabulary, and he speaks more to an analytic audience. But his conclusions are so similar to most of the postmoderns that we read um, at the root. Anyways, but here he says, uh, my present suggestion is that it is nonsense <laughs> and the root of much nonsense to speak of a linguistic component and a factual component in the truth of any individual statement. Taking collectively, science has its double dependence upon language and experience. But this duality is not significantly traceable into the statements of science taken one by one. Yeah, that's the whole thesis right there. If you want to, yeah. if you want to jump to that, um, read the paragraph right before section six, empiricism without the dogmas, and that's that's what he's getting at throughout the whole entire paper. Is that you can't have something that is just true by definition itself, wholly apart from reality. Well, of course. And, and on the other side, you can't have something that is just true by its sense data. Um, or I- empirical uh, truth or whatever. That that doesn't make any sense. You have to have some kind of definition involved with it. So those things are commingled. Hmm. Right, so um, somebody could say to him, it's like, well, what, what you're saying here, Quine, at the end of the day, is that you don't believe in something as simple as physical objects because you just took out the distinctions, you took out the, the, reductionist, uh, the, the reductionism, and so you don't have the warrant to even say anything truth about the statement this computer exists in front of me you know they have no um, epistemological ground for doing so yeah I don't I, I think he's I think he's more interested in redrawing the epistemological ground than, than you know he wants to show that um, you know the traditional grounds that you can reduce a statement that a statement is just just a uh, dressing for him for empirical for just for sensory experience, he wants to show that, that an isolated statement can't exist by itself in that way and bring it all together. So instead of saying it's a foundationalist in that way, immediately verifiable uh, epistemology, he wants to say that um, epistemology is going to be descriptive instead of normative. Yeah. yeah. Like foundationalism is normative, so he, that's why he takes a turn towards pragmatism. Pragmatism is um, an analytic, you know, in a line of analytic tradition, but it's... It, I, I kind of agree with you about, you know, you have this continental flavor because pragmatism is so bold in its worldview claims. Right. You know, uh, forget about truth. We have to redefine truth completely. And that kind of like um, rock and roll, let's start from zero and redefine being and, mm-hmm. you know, let's let's flip being and essence and all these kinds of things or existence and essence around and uh, meaning comes from what you're already doing. You know, that, right, yeah. that, that, that sounds so continental. Yeah. And that I and I think that's. Yeah, I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah, I was just I was pointing that out simply because I think he like if somebody were to come and say, "Hey, you don't believe in physical objects," you know, he would he actually responds to that. He says, um, "He says, let me interject for my part. I do qua la physicists believe in physical objects and not in Homer's gods, right? Um, and I consider it a scientific error to believe otherwise. But in point of epistemological footing, as Nate was pointing out." Um, the physical objects and the gods differ only in degree and not in kind. Nice. Both sorts of entities enter our conception only as cultural posits. And you know, as soon as I hear that yeah, phrase, yeah, yeah. they enter as cultural posits. I, I, I don't know. I've that's no longer analytic. Yeah. In my well, it's, I mean, it's very pragmatic. Right. You Narrative. Know, you know, and, Rorty, and you know, you know, there and and. Uh, the pragmatists went even farther with this, actually. I mean, Quine just started down a path, and um, Davidson, where was he at? Chicago or Dartmouth or something? Yeah. Um, when he went, you know, even further. Um, but the Homeric gods were functionally true in a situation. We explain right. something by reference to um, physical objects are functionally true. You know, so um, yeah. yeah. The, go ahead. Yeah. And that's that's different from the logical positivist who said that anything that you talk about metaphysically or ontologically um, is nonsense. You, you can't say that it's true or false. You can kind of speak of it, um, but he's saying it's actually a difference in degree, not kind. That's I think that's part of what he's referencing. I may be wrong there, but I think he, that's what he's going off of. Right. Yeah, that's a good connection between the logical positivist episode. Yeah. But um, one of the reasons I really like that is because I think what Quine does is he does a sort of um, 
what I would say is a, a Van Tillian critique of sort of the history of philosophy. You know? Yeah, it um, seems like yeah, definitely of these yeah categories. And then and then he had. I mean, I don't agree, of course, with you know web of truth. Where, you know, where, in pragmatism, where he ends up, mm-hmm. coherentism, right? But nevertheless, it's you know he can see the fact that there's these sort of two assumptions and. Um, it, it can go back and forth from, you know, a, a relativism to a strict logical positivism. And I think, you know, he's he sees that. And so as far as the, the tough, difficult work of getting into the the nitty gritty of analytic philosophy, something as as rigid as, as all bachelors are unmarried males. Like, how do I take that apart as a Ventilian mm-hmm. to show that this can't rest on its own? Well, Quine does it for us. Yeah. You know, so you, you, I would suggest to all you Christian philosophers steal that gold. Yeah, you know, don't throw that out out just because Quine doesn't end up being a, uh, a reformed Christian, right? It's borrowed Christian capital. Yeah. I think it is. Yeah, like like Jonathan said, the, the methodology is, uh, we can appreciate that. So how do we, how do we start where he started and not end up where where he ended up? I uh, go ahead, Jared. Well, just kind of uh, jumping off of what you said. Uh, a lot of what I see in um, one example is if, if you see the comments that are so pro Christopher Hitchens in the Hitchens Wilson debate, we there are comment comments come every day on, on those videos. It's it's amazing. People are still watching them just constantly, constantly. And I'd say probably ninety percent are atheists who just champion Hitchens and just say, "Oh, he just he nailed it." And there there's many discussions that that go on just between different commenters or whatever, but. Um, most of the time it's someone who has, you know, an, an inkling of philosophy who tries to make a positive case and say, oh, well, you don't need morality, uh, you don't need religion to posit some kind of morality. And then they go off on a tangent and, and try to positively state um, their case. And what I would say is if, if you apply Quine, um, you can basically say, all right, all those terms that you just mentioned in terms of morality, religion, um, you know, defending, uh, presupposing all those things, you got to define those before you just state that and think that that has a certain meaning within a certain context. There's a lot there. There's so much more work to be done with your one statement that you just put on, you know, a a YouTube comment than you actually think. And so what I appreciated about this is Mm -hmm. you need to go back and do your homework on these, on these terms that you're just throwing out there in terms of morality and epistemology epistemology and all those types of things mm. um and it, you know define them define them in context uh you know lay out a whole system of meaning otherwise i don't really know what you mean when you posit something like that yeah. right right yeah, yeah. And, and on a on a more uh, uh i would say on a uh that was almost like a critical note right there i would say almost a, a positive note as far as how a christian can steal this uh gold or understand that it's the truth to it is stolen capital from the Christian worldview. It's just to shift. First off, recognize that if you don't have um, a biblical foundation, you're not, there's, there's been no progression and there's not going to be progression outside of it. Um, If you don't have, if you don't start with uh, special revelation, as far as your epistemological structure, goes you're always going to be coming back to 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 show yourself that i'm basing everything on my brain um and i'm going to be self-inferentially incoherent so Mm -hmm. self-referentially incoherent so um and i think quine is just pointing that out again it's been pointed out in the past it's uh, by christians and non-christians and the like and here's a non-christian who actually does his homework and points it out so yeah um on a more positive note, I think what, when we were talking about mystery is to show that we can't account for the fact that there we can't explain away analytic or mathematical statements. Um, why? Because they're created. That I mean, at the mysterious level, it would yeah, be similar right. to saying, well, how do you explain um, water turning into wine? It's like, yeah. well, there's this chemical reaction, and yeah. what happened? It's like, no, you, you can't get at the uh, the mystery there. So, you, um, but what you can do is you can recognize if I don't stand on this at all, then nothing. Then there's absolutely nothing. Yeah, yeah. And so 
you can recognize that. Um, the second thing is to recognize, and this is, I think, is real valuable in apologetics, is recognize that if you go down the route of apologetics with uh, sheer rationality, mm-hmm. rationality itself can be questioned to the point of um, just absurdity, which totally. is what Quine did. Totally. So we don't, we're not Christians because rationality wins the day, right? It's, you know, we're not as... You know, a famous quote: "We're not convict. We're not. Uh, we didn't. We ha- we didn't decide that scripture is true. We're convicted that scripture is true. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so it shows, even at the uh, at the level of Christianity, your your Christianity and your convictions come from the work of the Spirit, which is mysterious, eschatological. And so, <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to get into theology, but um, if that makes sense. Totally. And just going off of that again, you know, the, the common critique, you know, Christianity is irrational. What exactly do you mean by irrational? Then define the word reason for me. Then put that into the context of your whole belief system. Then define circularity if you accuse us of being circular. What does circularity mean? Okay, now what does, um, you know, your, what's, your, what's your foundation? What does that actually mean, your epistemological foundation? Is it coherentism? There are so... <laughs> So many things taken for granted when someone critiques the Christian position that they don't even realize that they have to just delve into so, so much to even say something meaningful in the first place. That's right. And, and so and I think it, something that we can conclude with is one of the reasons I, yes, cherish this article is because it is it shuts the mouths of even non-Christian uh, philosophers, as far as a lot of the work that has been done, it, it shuts the mouth of, I would say, um, overly bearing Christian apologetists who would actually put everything on uh, reason as opposed to scripture beforehand. But it also shuts the mouth of your your sort of Christopher Hitchens type of character who um, shoots from the hip. Yeah. You know, and he's like, oh, you know, nobody rational would ever believe this. Like, well, rational. Yeah, we exactly. talk about Russian. It's like, oh, you want to go down the analytic route? Let's go there. Let's go to the most simple statement: all bachelors are unmarried males. Yeah, is that rational? Right. And so you're just defeated into absurdity. Yeah. So you haven't you haven't done it yet. Mm-hmm. You know, as a non-Christian, you haven't you haven't become God yet and be able to <laughs> explain everything in order for you to counter us. So I really like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well said. Well said. Yeah. With that, I think we'll bring this episode to a close. So that has been Quine, and that has been his article to uh, two dogmas of empiricism. Uh, an interesting one at that. And if you uh, have not found it already, we'll have a link to that in the show notes uh, for you to be able to read it for yourself. Uh, but until then, uh, you can find us online. Uh, I'll start with Westminster at wts.edu, as well as facebook.com and youtube.com slash Westminster Online. And you can find Reformed Forum online at reformedforum.org. If you'd like to get a hold of us, please email us at mail at reformedforum.org, or you can find us on Twitter at Reformed Forum. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Theologians. It has been another wonderful time.